You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Ezra. Here's Nate. Well, as we approach Ezra chapter 3, we've already seen the consecration of the people unto the work. King Cyrus rises up uh, over the Persians and he declares and commissions that whoever desires to go back to Jerusalem to be involved in the rebuilding of the temple specifically and in some senses the city and the region secondarily, that they would return and that they would go back, that they, they would be funded in this project. And as I mentioned in our last study, uh, those people were a consecrated, dedicated group of individuals. And the reason that we can say that is because there in Babylon, God had always encouraged the people of Israel, mainly and often through the prophet Jeremiah, to live in Babylon, to pray for the peace of Babylon, to uh, you know, plant crops and vineyards and have business venture there in Babylon. And so you had many people who had settled roots and and had enjoyed life in Babylon. And so now here's Cyrus saying, you can leave. You can go back to Jerusalem, a decimated place, a uh, difficult place, and you can be involved in a work from the ground up in the rebuilding of the temple. And for out of two to three million Jewish people at the time, for only 50,000 of them to step forward for that rebuilding project tells us all we need to know about the apparent difficulty. It wasn't like there had to be some kind of lottery system selecting uh, from these masses of people who wanted to go. No, it was a strictly volunteer reality. And so these people were doing a difficult work, rolling up their sleeves and risking their lives. And it says in Ezra chapter 3, uh, after, of course, in chapter 2, we get a listing of the families and the heads and the towns of these uh, people who did come. It tells us in chapter 3, verse 1, that when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now we'd already seen the listing of various towns. They were heading back to the places that belonged to their families historically. And so they went back to their towns for about three months. They're there and they're sort of, sort of reestablishing their towns, getting themselves personally set up clearing out rubble and for about three months setting up their own homes but after three months they came in the seventh month of the year and uh, as one man to Jerusalem to begin to work uh, upon the temple now this month that they gathered together isn't just some random month that they had on the calendar it was a very significant month for the Jewish religious year. Uh, it's, first of all, in that month, you have the first day of the new year in their civil calendar, which they would proclaim with the blowing of trumpets and a holy convocation. And then 10 days later, they would have the day of Yom, Yom Kippur or the day of atonement. And then uh, 
in the 15th to 22nd day of the month, they would have the Feast of Tabernacles or booths that they would uh, celebrate at, uh, at that time. And so there were a lot of you know, religious reasons, worship reasons for them to gather together uh, there during this uh, seventh month of the year, uh, the month of Tishri. And so, you know, right around September, October on our uh, calendar. And so it, it was very meaningful that, for them, is all I'm trying to say, to come together at that time. But I love the phrase there in verse 1, that they came together as one man to Jerusalem. As one man to Jerusalem. These people assembled together as one man. This was, a, was suggesting, of course, that it was time. It was time to rebuild the temple. It was time that this project got off the ground and, and, and really began in earnest. Oh, sure, they'd started this project by volunteering and packing up their belongings and selling their homes and, and, and taking the long journey to Jerusalem. Uh, they'd begun the work by reestablishing their towns and setting up their homes and getting into the routine of their families and I'm sure beginning to plant crops and all of that. But this here, as they gathered together in Jerusalem as one man, really indicated that it was time to roll up their sleeves and get to work directly on the rebuilding of the temple. And I love that phrase, that the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem, because there is a, an incredible strength in the unity of God's people. The psalm, Psalm 133, I think says it wonderfully. When it records, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And so according to the psalmist, the unity of God's people, and they would sing that song in particular when they would ascend the hills to Jerusalem in order to leave their various towns and villages and unite together in the worship of the Lord. And the psalmist says, listen, this is a good and a pleasant thing. The alternative, division, is absolutely ugly. It is beautiful to come together in unity. He says it's like the precious oil that was poured down to sanctify Aaron for the work of the ministry, which ultimately meant that the nation was worshiping, that God would be glorified, and the nation would be incredibly strong. And so when you see unity taking place, you know that God is going to do an amazing work amongst a unified people. And he says it's like the dew of Hermon that speaks of refreshment and life that comes upon an otherwise dry and lifeless land. And so where would we be without unity? These people came together as one man and they would accomplish much because of their unity together. It didn't mean, of course, unity never means that we're to sacrifice things that we should not sacrifice, but to be all in, to be a part of the team, to be unified. I believe that the church can accomplish wonderful things 
together, things that uh, we can accomplish together that we would never be able to accomplish alone. And so after they came together, it says in verse 2, that then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So the first leader mentioned here is uh, Joshua, uh, the high priest. Uh, Zerubbabel, of course, is the governor, the civil leader. But here they're going to rebuild the altar. So Joshua, the high priest, the spiritual leader, uh, is mentioned first. And notice what they, they do together. It says in verse 2, they built the altar of the God of Israel. This was their first priority. And as I've already mentioned, there in Babylon, they did not worship the Lord in this kind of way. They could not offer these sacrifices on the altar. These would be the first sacrifices on this altar uh, in over 50 years. And so they understand their priority and they build the altar. Uh, the worship of God is so incredibly central in our lives. We must have worship, constant flowing uh, inside of our lives. And of course, Ezra, in giving his commentary on the subject, says that they did all this as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Ezra, a scribe interested in the word of God, loved the word of God and saw what had been written and saw that they were doing it, says, listen, they were doing as it is written in God's word. They set, verse 3, the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And so not only did they build the altar, but they set it in its place. And notice that the underlying attitude, the entire time that they're going through this particular part of the rebuilding project, is that as they're building the altar, it says that fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. In fact, the way that it's worded, it sounds as if they set the altar in its place because of this fear that was overwhelming them because of the peoples uh, in the land. Now, uh, fear is very normal to all of us. But the question, of course, is what will we do with our fear? And these people, of course, could have, because of fear of the people around them, ceased to build. But at least at this particular moment, the fear of the peoples around them actually encouraged them to build. It, it, it caused them pro to produce uh, in their lives. And I think oftentimes our fear can either uh, cause us to stop a work of God or to start a work of God. And uh, these people, uh, they were driven at this moment and they built that altar. I think it's good to ask the question from time to time. And I like to ask myself this, what would I do if I had no fear? What would I do if I truly believed that God was for me, that God was with me? 
what actions would I take? What, what things do I hold back on simply because of fear? And I think that in your future and in your life, fear will be one of the biggest enemies uh, that you'll face. But their desire for God's glory far outweighed their fear of the enemy. And so they built that altar and immediately they commenced with the burnt offerings, the burnt offerings morning and evening. Now in Numbers 28 verse 3 and 4, we have a great description of these sacrifices. They say, and you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs a year old without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. These were the prescribed burnt offerings for the nation. One lamb in the morning, one lamb in the evening uh, every day. And this would commonly be known as the morning sacrifice and also the evening sacrifice. I think it speaks of the need for us to have in our lives a uh, continuance, a constancy in our worship of the Lord. I, I believe personally that a great way to start out each day is in the word and prayer. And I'll be very honest in saying that, you know, at the beginning of the day, I'll you know, typically dedicate a good chunk of time to seeking the Lord in his word and seeking the Lord in prayer. And that at the end of the day, I don't have that same uh, experience duplicated near the end of the day. Uh, however, it is good to be thinking about how can I all throughout the day, not just compartmentalize this little moment with God, but all throughout my day, through fellowship, through the listen, listening of the teaching of God's word, through podcasts like this one, through, uh, you know, uh, reading and at the dinner table talking about God's word, through moments of prayer, how can I be a man or a woman who uh, morning and evening is in worship of the Lord? And so they got the altar uh, going. And it's just the center of the nation here, so important. And they kept, verse 4, the feast of booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. And so, yeah, he records there the Feast of Booths that they immediately got themselves into. This was, according to Deuteronomy 16, a seven-day feast. And uh, it was a celebration of all the produce that they brought in uh, after a time of harvest. And uh, everybody would celebrate, sons and daughters, servants, uh, Levites, sojourners, widows, orphans. Uh, everyone would celebrate for seven days, and uh, they would be thankful for what God had blessed them with. This feast is also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits, and uh, just a beautiful time. Uh, celebrated seven weeks after the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And uh, in the New Testament, this feast is referred to as uh, Pentecost. 
And so just a beautiful time. They celebrate, they rejoice, they begin this particular feast, and they start offering all these different sacrifices, daily burnt offerings, regular burnt offerings, offerings at the new moon, which was basically would mark the first day of the month for them and was considered a holy day. And uh, all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings and everyone who made a free will offering uh, to the Lord. Now, this was beautiful in that Old Testament era. In the New Testament economy, however, uh, we have the fulfillment of all of these sacrifices. Paul said to the Colossian church in Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And it's very true. When you look at the religious spiritual calendar of the people of Israel, they had yearly, monthly, and weekly observances. And Jesus is the fulfillment of every single one of those observances. He brings in a great harvest, a harvest truly worth celebrating because of his resurrection. He is the first fruits of that wonderful harvest uh, that is ours uh, in Christ. Their festivals, Jesus is our reason for celebration. Their monthly new moon, being excited at that festival for the fresh month in front of them. Well, Jesus is our new and fresh life every single day. Their Sabbaths that they would celebrate, well, Jesus is our rest. And so even though they had yearly, monthly, and weekly observances, we have Jesus Christ, the substance, every single day. And uh, Paul wanted to make sure that the Colossian believers did not go back, of course, to the Old Testament pattern, but that they embraced uh, that which uh, all of those festivals and Sabbaths and new moons were pointing to, and that is Jesus. From the first day, verse 6, back in Ezra chapter 3, of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So even though the altar has been established and now the worship system is beginning to function, still uh, the temple is yet future and all they really have together is uh, just the altar. They don't even yet have the foundation of the temple. And so Ezra is turning his attention again on the real work that they were really getting after. They weren't content with just the altar. They wanted to build uh, the temple. Now, when Solomon built the first temple, uh, he hired the Phoenicians, people from Tyre and Sidon, and they would cut down their cedar trees and they'd put them into the uh, Mediterranean Ocean, uh, there from Lebanon. They would float them down the coast to the port city of, in Israel of Joppa, and there they would be taken and uh, shipped on over to Jerusalem. And so here, years later, they repeat the same um, 
uh, method in order to gain wood to begin building uh, the temple. And so uh, he, they hire the Sidonians and the Tyrians, and uh, they're paying for this according to the grant that Cyrus had given to them, indicating to us once again that where God guides and the, when God gives an opportunity, God will pay for that opportunity. Now, in the second year, verse 8, after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord, and Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. So now we fast forward to the second year. We had a, a period of preparation for building the temple and the foundation. They were collecting the materials that were required. And so now we're in the second uh, month of the second year. And so that's a delay of seven months from the time the altar was built to the time that they really began laying that foundation. And those seven months can be explained simply with the reality that they had to gather the materials for building. But I want you to notice the wonderful leadership of Zerubbabel, the governor, and Jeshua, or Joshua, the high priest. Notice in verse 8 that these men came together and they made a beginning. This is, in my mind, what leaders so often do. Leaders will create a fresh and new beginning. Sometimes it's in a company. Sometimes it's in uh, a family. Sometimes it's in a church. But leaders will create a new beginning. Uh, they will rally the troops and say, guys, here's the fresh vision, the thing that is coming, what we believe that God can do. That's what these leaders did. They made a beginning. I've always loved that sentence or explanation of the leadership of these men. They also appointed under leaders for the work, and then they supervised the work, an excellent role from a leader. It should be noted uh, also that as they, you know, were doing this work and appointing supervisors, they appointed Levites uh, from 20 years old and upward. Now, originally, you go all the way back to Numbers chapter 4, verse 3, the uh, requirement age-wise was that you had to be 30 years old as a Levite to serve in this capacity. Later, that number changed in chapter uh, Numbers 8, verse 24, to 25 years of age. Here, it's reduced all the way down to the age of 20. And uh, probably because of the scarcity of Levites, and I think it highlights the reality that God will go as young as he needs to go. And uh, I, I think many churches would do well to be thinking more about the young and allowing the young to be involved in the work of the ministry. Now in verse 10, it says that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, 
praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Notice that all of this singing, all of this celebration, it was a response to the great thing that had just occurred in the laying of the foundation of the temple there in Israel. And I think this brings forth two great points. It is good for us to celebrate progress in the Christian life. Uh, you might not be there already. You might not have made it to the very end. You might not be at the finish line, but celebrate the wins. But secondly, I think this also points out the beauty of responsive praise, responsive praise. I've always tried to do ministry in a real grace-based approach, believing that as I hold out the wonderful grace of God, that people will respond to God's grace with lives of consecration and devotion. No need to berate people or beat them down. You give them grace and they fall in love with Christ and they will want to serve the Lord rather than just sort of having some kind of outward transformation that is not genuine. Now, when they praised the Lord in verse 11, they were praising God uh, because uh, of the covenant that they were still in. They're saying, praise the Lord, his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. In other words, they're celebrating. It was kind of, it's kind of like they're saying, you know, it was a little iffy there uh, for a while. We weren't certain that we were still God's covenant people. But here, of course, they discover once again that God is faithful to his promises and faithful to his people. But many of the priests on that day, verse 12, and Levites and heads of fathers' houses Old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now, there were those that were there that day, and this is what's being recorded. There were those who were old enough to have remembered the temple that Solomon had built and, of course, had witnessed uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming against the temple, destroying the temple, and had gone through Nebuchadnezzar's deportation. And so on this day that everyone's celebrating the foundation, uh, there is a group of older men who are crying with a loud voice, because of what they're witnessing. They realize that in comparison, this new thing pales in contrast with what came before. But there were others who never saw what came before and they were simply rejoicing. You know, I think that comparison is one of the greatest obstacles, obstacles to progress and forward motion. You know, whether it's in the church or just your own life personally, comparison and always looking to others and looking and comparing with the success of others or a past uh, previous era in the life of your church. I think comparison is a great obstacle from time to time. This discouragement is dangerous to the work of God. You can lose your initial excitement 
And so uh, this wrong view of the former glory, I believe, is dangerous to the work of God. It's okay to look back on what came before in uh, 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 various churches you've been in or cities you've been in and say, those were great times. But it's important to live in the moment, to say now is now. And this is more glorious than what we had just five minutes ago. And it is wonderful to watch God move inside of this world. These old men had a difficult time rejoicing because of that comparison which what, with, what came, uh, with what had occurred in the past. And I know as a local church pastor, pastoring a church that is 30 plus years in age, this happens quite often. People will remember some season or some era, but that era is over and it's time to rejoice over what is now. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.